Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a What Fresh Hell Fresh Take. This is Amy. And this is Margaret. And we have had a lot of questions on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash What Fresh Hellcast, about interfaith holidays. And as Amy and I have long discussed, we are have many things not in common, <laughs> but one thing we do have in common is we're both... Catholic ladies who went to Catholic school married to Catholic dudes. And so we don't have a lot of experience with interfaith holidays. And so we decided this was a perfect time for a guest to help us through it. Today's guest is Susan Katz-Miller. She's a former Newsweek reporter who has written two books on interfaith families. She's the mom of two grown interfaith kids and one giant pandemic puppy named Olive. Her latest book is The Interfaith Family Journal, a hands-on journal that helps families learn how to honor one another's spiritual and cultural needs. Thanks for talking to us, Susan. So glad to be here. Let's start with the simple stuff. What does interfaith mean? How do you define that? There's a level where every family is an interfaith family, even yours, and here's why. No two individuals have identical beliefs, identical formative experiences in their childhood, even if they grew up technically in the same religion and belong to the same religion today. So every couple, every family has to work out, you know, do we do, you know, the lights on the house the way your family did, or we do them the way my family did? You always have to have those agreements that you come to together. But In terms of the more familiar idea of an interfaith family, you would have one parent from one religion and one parent from another religion. And more and more today, you may have one parent who is affiliated with a religion and another parent who is what statisticians call a religious nun, N-O-N-E, not (laughs) N-U-N. Not N-U-N, like we're familiar with. (laughs) Right. So the religious nuns are the fastest growing group in America when we look at religion. And that means they're either atheists or agnostics or simply live a secular life, simply don't feel like checking a religion box, do not affiliate. And that is a very fast growing category. So a lot of interfaith marriages today are, say, a Christian married to a religious nun. Or they may be two religious nuns, but from different religious backgrounds. One thing that you point out that is interesting to me, because I hadn't really thought of this, because I thought, well, 
you know, we are both from, you know, Catholic marriages, but even it's interesting to me how deep these traditions go. And it's not something I would have acknowledged, but even spending the first Christmas with my husband's family, I mean, they're Christian, the tree, it's all very Christmassy, but they did Christmas, quote unquote, wrong to me, you know, like, <laughs> right, they didn't do it correctly. <laughs> it was all wrong. And it shocked me. I mean, I was 37 when this was happening. I got married late. And so I wasn't like 21 and just leaving my parents' house. And I have a cousin who always says they sold their family house. And every time he drives by, he's like, that's not where the Christmas tree goes. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And it's funny to me that these, I think that's important that even if you share the same faith, these holiday traditions are like at a DNA level in us somehow. And you don't realize that, I think, until you start to navigate it. I would have said, like, oh, I don't care that much. And then I went to experience it. And I was like, what kind of monster doesn't have a roast at 3 p.m.? Like, what's wrong with you people? Right, exactly. And a couple of generations ago, you know, say an Italian Catholic marrying a Polish Catholic was a scandal. Yes. Oh, sure. let me tell you, yeah. you don't have to tell us that happened in both of our families. Right. That was a pain point in our family tree. It was an Irish Catholic marrying an Italian Catholic. And I mean, rend the garments time. Right. So that's what I'm saying that everybody can actually, when you think about it, relate to this idea of having two family cultures come together and having to figure out how they fit especially around times of religious holidays. So I have a sister-in-law who's an Italian Catholic. And when we're with her at Christmas, you know, we do the seven fishes. That's what you do. Lucky. But that's not something you would do in an Irish family. Yeah. We tend to think of these things, too, as being the sort of classic interfaith family is one Catholic, one Jew, and you've got the mensch on the bench and the elf on the shelf, and right, and you've got the Hanukkah bush. And <laughs> But your book, in a really wonderful 2020 way, goes way beyond that in exploring what faiths can come into play here. How did you do your research for this book? How did you go find so many different faiths? Well, when I did my first book, which was primarily about Jews and Christians marrying each other, I actually surveyed hundreds of families and interviewed, you know, hundreds. And then for by the time of the second book, I had begun coaching interfaith couples that came to me for guidance. So I had a lot more hands-on deep experience with individual couples and also my view had kind of expanded beyond the Jewish and Christian, which is what I grew up with. So I'm an interfaith kid myself. I had a Jewish parent and an Episcopalian parent. And so this is a topic that I've been living from birth and why I was so interested in working on it professionally. But by the time I wrote my second book, which just came out last year, I had become very aware of the incredible diversity of interfaith families, whether that means, you know, Muslims marrying Hindus, Buddhists marrying pagans, and also the idea that in a lot of families today, we have actually three or more religious heritages that are, you know, woven together. Whether it's your step-grandfather or your sister-in-law, if you have an extended family, most people do, then chances are you're going to have multiple religions represented. So to me, this is exciting. To me, this is rich and beautiful and gives us an opportunity 
for all kinds of creativity and all kinds of education about who we are globally. Do you have any kind of go-to rules around this topic? Like one of the things we sometimes talk about on the podcast is try to go with the person it's more important to, or I'm thinking of sort of global rules of how we solve conflicts in families and marriage. Do you have any kind of global rules around this? I think my first and most important rule is empathy. And that's really important in December. It's really important in the pandemic. We need to put ourselves in the shoes of our partner and not just think, you know, you come in with a defensive attitude. You come in thinking about what's important to you. And you really have to put yourself in your partner's position. And it's not always obvious. And you need to draw them out and get them to talk about how they're feeling, you know, what they did in childhood, what's important to them now, what's not important to them now. It's not always obvious. And that's why I wrote this. It's basically a workbook that takes you through all of that in a structured way that might be helpful if it's not comfortable for you to sit down and have those conversations without some kind of structure. We were just talking in a recent episode, we did an episode on parenting as a team and sort of deciding what your priorities are, not around faith necessarily, but talked about the importance of having intentional conversations and journaling and having the structure around it, preferably earlier on in your relationship, because as you say in the book, you're going to be doing this work anyhow, and you can be doing it with the guides and the sort of external, let's both talk about why this question, you know, matters to us or doesn't. So tell us a little bit about what people would find in the book if they sat down to do the work in the journal? So it starts with journaling prompts. And ideally, you and your partner each have a copy of the journal, and you, you do your journaling, and then you trade and you read what they wrote. And then there are questions that you come together and discuss and you talk about whether you understood what the person wrote or not. And then there's actually a creative exercise in each of the five weeks, each of the five chapters, because for some people, it's more comfortable to talk about these things when your hands are busy, when your senses are engaged. So for instance, in one week, one chapter, I suggest making an interfaith family cookbook. And this is really relevant in December because a lot of those tastes and smells around your religion often are Christmas or Hanukkah or Diwali. And so I encourage you to go to all of your extended relatives and collect those recipes and stories that go with them and put it together into a little interfaith family cookbook. And then you can give it to your relatives. And it's a way of celebrating the interfaithness of your family and the specific individual cultural gifts that you've gotten from each side. What about people? I hear this from friends of mine who are dealing with this situation. And I think the workbook is, it addresses this in a nice way. For people who feel like letting in other traditions degrades their traditions in a certain way. It's like a pie. There's only so many slices. And every one you give over to someone else's traditions kind of takes something away from what you want. So I think that that is a feeling that most successful interfaith families get beyond pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. 
Often that is an attitude that an extended family member might have that's pressuring you to pick their religion. Mm-hmm. And so you have to work with them. And there's a chapter in my book on engaging with extended family, especially those who may not approve of your family, and doing it in a way that's respectful and that makes them feel less fearful. Because this is about fear. It's about fear of assimilating you know, into some mythical Protestant America. It's about fear of losing your family heritage and those stories. And you don't have to lose any of that. To me, it's very much a both and situation where you can honor your family and engage with other religions and and with your partner in a respectful way. And even the religious nuns, it seems to me, have cultural traditions that are important to them. I mean, you could have grown up not going to church on Christmas, but you had a Christmas tree and you have these things that your family always did. You always made the pepper cookies or whatever that are extremely important to you. Sure. I mean, we just had that with Thanksgiving, right? I mean, Thanksgiving is a secular holiday, basically. I mean, I guess not historically, but there's not a religious tradition that is associated with it in my home. And it's still the thing of like, well, if you don't have cream right onions, you might as well cancel the whole event. Like it's useless. You know, people just right. have strong traditions that are important to them, whether or not they're associated with their religious heritage. Right. Families have culture. Right. Each family has its own culture. And, you know, if you happen to be in a Hindu family, that culture has religious orientation around that. Or if you happen to be in a Jewish family, that colors the culture of your family. But again, it really varies from family to family in a dramatic way. And so I try to help people to understand that if they're having conflict, often it's not about religious difference. It's not about theology. It's not about, you know, whether there was a physical resurrection or not. It's more about whether to put the fried onions on the green bean casserole or not. Right? (laughs) Not in my house. And the answer is yes to that, guys, by the way. (laughs) Let's be clear. I don't care what you do in the workshop. Those onions better be on those beans. Well, we have some questions from our listeners. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to throw you some curveballs that our listeners are dealing with right now. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby's skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used hero bread. It 
adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty-calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Okay, so we went to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash whatfreshhellcast, and we asked our listeners to tell us if you're part of an interfaith family, what are some of the great parts and pain points of having an interfaith family at the holidays. And I wanted to ask you, Susan, for some advice on behalf of these listeners. So Elizabeth says, if interfaith families don't ratchet up the pressure for perfection times two, I don't know what does. The very question of to tree or not to tree starts off the holiday season with a bang. How does one push back on perfection times two, on doing two different traditions to the nth degree? This is a great question. There's a huge amount of burnout among interfaith families around December because if they're a Jewish and a Christian interfaith family, you do have these two important holidays. Hanukkah, less important in the Jewish calendar than Christmas, but it's become very important culturally in America, partly because of its proximity to Christmas. So there's this danger of really burning out of overwhelming your kids with mountains of presents for both holidays because there's some kind of competition. Mm -hmm. That's not a good thing. I recommend a couple of things. One is do be aware of which are the most important religious holidays in each of the religions in your family. And so, you know, in Judaism, it's really important for parents to pass down the importance of Passover of the high holy days in the fall. And maybe you let the presents be at Christmas and not pile on twice as many presents with Hanukkah and Christmas. And there's a fear among parents that therefore Christianity will win because presents. Right. And I don't find that that's the case. Looking at, you know, I've been following interfaith kids from a very young age to adulthood now. My kids are 26 and 23, and we raised them with both religions. And a beautiful thing happened this week. They're both out of the house, and independently, each of them contacted me and said, do you have a spare menorah? Because my house of friends that I live with now wants to do Hanukkah with us, with me. And they are now in charge of making Hanukkah happen in these interfaith households that they live in. So, Hanukkah ended up important to each of them, even though we did mainly the presents were at Christmas. So that's one piece of advice. 
That's something that we talk a lot about on the podcast. And we speak to a lot of parents who have very, very young kids. They're just starting this journey. My kids are eight and up and Amy's kids are teenagers. So we kind of sometimes call ourselves the voice of the future, you know, like this is where this is heading, guys. Yeah. And one thing that we talk a lot about in that context is this is a marathon. This is a long game. And I think often you know, as parents, we get locked into these kind of minute by minute details, which is like Christmas is running with the presents and the high holy days aren't as interesting somehow. And what happens in the long run is that those memories are all together for kids. And I think that's something that it's kind of hard to see. And whether it's religious tradition or whether it's like, I had some good days or some bad days, that's what life is. It's a big picture. And that's, I think, what your kids will take out of it. And that's a really good thing to remember as you think about sometimes the heaviness of what seems like these minute decisions. And there's going to be lapses. You can't do everything. Nobody does. For instance, in the years when Hanukkah and Christmas actually collide and overlap, that's very overwhelming. This year, we're lucky because Hanukkah has kind of got its own space in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it's over before Christmas. So you won't have those overlap days that it's hard to keep everything, all those balls in the air when they overlap. But I think what's important to kids is that they're going to remember that one moment. You don't know when it's going to happen. You can't control when it's going to happen. You know, that moment that they're going to remember. But if they're, say, lighting Hanukkah candles and the family's there and they're singing together, and if you pull that off even once during a Hanukkah season, they'll remember it. And if there's a night when everything gets messed up and you don't end up lighting the candles, they're not going to remember that. They're going to remember the night that you did light them. That's the chip I wish we could give to people who worry about this is like, they're going to remember the night you lit them. I have a related Christmas Hanukkah question from a listener, Sarah, and she just moved from a community that is almost all Jewish and where her kids were in Jewish preschool to a community where her kid is now the only non-Christian in the class. And she's tried to sort of introduce Hanukkah into their holiday discussions. But her kid has gone, you know, from a diverse sort of all religions are presented place to a very all Christmas all the time kind of place. And her kids are at the age where they're kind of too young to understand. Yeah, there are things that happen at Christmas that we don't take part in, which I think is a hard message for a two-year-old or a five-year-old to understand. How do you recommend that interfaith families handle it when the interfaith thing is our faith is this, but the community surrounding us is that? Yes, that is hard. It is harder. And there are going to be times when your child feels sad and alienated, but there's also going to be a period probably later when they feel pride, when they feel you know, the underdog is very compelling, Hmm. right? And I think young people today take pride in all of their diversity and all of the differences. And you have to have confidence that your child will grow into that eventually. And in the meantime, there's a lot of logistical, practical things you have to negotiate. My father used to talk about things building your character, right? It builds your character to be a minority in whatever way, in whatever culture that you're in. It makes you stronger. Play the long game, in other words. 
Yeah. And do you think, like, is there a way to let traditions in? Because it seems to me that the traditions are one thing, the religion is something else. Like, we have a listener named Katie who says that she is raising her kids in the Jewish faith, but they also have the tree and the cookies and presents. And for her family, it works to to blend and do the compromise that way, one religion and one set of cultural expectations. Sure, that works, that can work. I mean, part of the point of my workbook is that no one pathway works for all interfaith families. It really depends on who you are, who your spouse is, who your extended family is, what communities are available in your geographic area. Because, you know, as we were just saying with the other listener, it really makes a difference whether you're living in a diverse neighborhood or you're not. Our listener, Elizabeth, she's uh, paraphrasing you, Margaret. She says, if you've met one interfaith family, you've met one interfaith family. Yeah. So if it works for you, then sure, you can do that. Sure. So different interfaith families make different decisions. For some, it's going to work well that you have one religious identity for your children, one affiliation, but you can celebrate holidays from the other religion in a secular way. For instance, the trees and, you know, maybe Santa, but not the crash, not Jesus. For other families, they're going to want to do both and teach the religious content of both. And that's something that in earlier generations, nobody thought that was even possible, but there's a lot of families doing it now. And in some families, it's going to be secular for both religions. They're not going to do religious content from either, but they're going to continue to practice those family traditions from both. And in other families, they may not want to do any of it. So, you know, there's a huge variation of what's going on right now with interfaith families, and there's no one pathway that's right. What I say is that each pathway you pick is going to have benefits and it's going to have drawbacks. There is no pathway that's going to completely fix your interfaith family because it's not broken in the first place. But there's no one pathway that's going to work for everybody. So you can't really say this works for us and therefore it will work for you. Yeah. Because you don't know what other people's families are going through. And I think the crux of that is... Something that people skip, I skip it all the time. I talk about it all the time with budget, right? Like, why would I want to make a budget? It's just going to reveal that I don't have enough money, you know? Like, <laughs> that feeling of, I don't want to have this conversation because I'm going to, it's not going to work out. And we talk about in Catholicism, there's the tradition of pre-cana where you go and you have this conversation with a priest, but the conversation is basically between you and your spouse to be. What do you want? What are your values? How would you handle money? How do you? And I went into it like, oh, the stupid thing I have to do. And my husband luckily went into it, who was not Catholic at the time, <laughs> came into it and said, let's make the most of this if we have to go do it. And it was such a useful exercise to really sit down and say, let's just ask these questions. And if we don't match up, and if there are friction points, we can deal with those things. But if we pretend there's no friction points and put our heads in the sand, that's going to be significantly worse. Right, exactly. Yes, that tradition in Catholicism of being forced to go and talk about all of this before marriage is one of my many favorite things about Catholicism that I think <laughs> all religions should adopt, all people should adopt. And that an, was another thing that I had in mind when I wrote this workbook. Yes. But it's also helpful for families at other points. So if you missed doing it before getting married – it's not too late. And you may find yourself with three kids with three different opinions on 
what the family should be doing for their religious traditions and at Christmas and at Hanukkah. And you can actually go through the workbook at that point and involve your kids and listen to them. Because once kids are like five or eight, they have strong opinions on these things. And as parents, we don't really get to choose what their religious identity is. All we get to choose is the education that we give them. And so I think it's important that we recognize that they have their own feelings about these things after a certain age. This leads me to a question we have from a listener named Amanda, who says she's pretty conservative and active Christian that married an atheist, and he is completely supportive of her beliefs and values. But when it comes to weekly church attendance, she goes, he doesn't, he might go once in a while to please her, but he doesn't go. They have several children. She has five kids. And of course, she's going to church. Dad doesn't go to church, and it's getting to be a harder sell. The kids want to you know, stay home with dad instead of going to church. So how do you handle it when sort of one parent is observant and wants the kids to be observant, and the other parent is not undermining that, but just not participating in that tradition? Yes, this is becoming really common. In fact, I just reviewed a memoir by a Christian woman married to a man who's no longer practicing. And it can be very lonely if you feel like you're doing all the work and trying to pull the kids along and your spouse is not. But also we have to recognize that kids rebel pretty early, often from whatever religious indoctrination you're giving them. (laughs) And it's not necessarily the fault of your spouse. I mean, there's a lot of families where both families are going together to church or to synagogue and the kids start rebelling and saying, we have better things to do. This is stupid. We don't want to be there. And religious education programs have been struggling for generations to try to make it, you know, more engaging, more participatory. (laughs) (laughs) Fun religious ed. Right. I mean, it exists, but it's somewhat rare. It's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So, but again, there may be issues with the couple in terms of the balance of work, the balance of, you know, childcare, the balance of a lot of other things that aren't necessarily a religious difference per se. But ultimately, you have to allow your partner to be honest with your children about what their beliefs and practices are. And you have to understand that you don't get to control how your children end up just because you're the one who practices a religion and your spouse doesn't. You don't know how your kids are going to end up. And none of us end up until we die. We continue to change. We disaffiliate. We reaffiliate. We discover, you know, a new church, a new practice. We begin Buddhist meditation. And our parents don't control any of that ultimately. I have a question that is an offshoot of this question, and I'm going to bring it up right after this break. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health, and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. 
If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Okay, so here's one thing that I think about with this, even in my non-interfaith, my just interhuman marriage, is that often, I'm going to speak in generalities, it is the mom of the household, or it is just one partner in the household who is driving almost all the activity around the holidays. There is one head elf in this household, and it is me. And so it can be difficult when my husband introduces information like, well, why don't we have a blank? And my head explodes. And I'm like, I've already spent all this time, you know, decking the halls and making merry. And if you want to do that, I guess you have to do it. But it's not his instinct to do it. And that seems to me even more complicated in an interfaith situation where people are bringing different traditions and the person who's kind of driving the train has to also somehow get on board traditions that are not their own. Yes, that is something that a lot of people experience. It's really important to dissect out gender roles and, you know, the tradition of who does the baking, who does the taking the kids to Sunday school, all of that from the interfaith family issues. Hmm. You mean like take them as separate issues? Yeah, because, you know, if you have a woman who feels she has to do all the work around the holidays that's an issue. And it's separate from which religion she is, which religion her husband is, you know, which is demonstrated by the fact that you're bringing this up as something that happens in your own household, which isn't even interfaith. So I want to be very careful not to blame on the interfaith state, an issue that is really more about gender roles. (laughs) Right, right. I think it does compound, it can create resentment, when the woman in a family is expected to carry the weight of passing on a religion that's not even hers. You know, if the family chooses the religion of the husband to give to the children as their religious identity, then yeah, he needs to step up and, you know, be part of the process for passing down those traditions for sure. I think that's interesting that it may be heavier, but it's the fundamental problem is not an interfaith problem. It's a roles in the family problem that needs to be solved. Yeah. 
And all of that becomes very fraught around the holidays. <laughs> I mean, everything becomes fraught around the holidays. Like where I park at the shopping mall becomes fraught around the holidays. <laughs> and especially these holidays. And it's, yes, it's doubly fraught right now in the pandemic. I mean, I just put on a full Thanksgiving dinner, which I had never had to do in my entire life because we did it in an extended family where everybody brought dishes. But because of the pandemic, we're in this tiny bubble with just my daughter and her boyfriend. And so I had to make the mashed potatoes, the sweet potatoes, the cranberry <laughs> sauce, the everything. And my daughter's a vegan. Oh, so I made it all vegan. So that was crazy. So the pandemic is making it harder. It's making it you really have to think about simplifying. You really have to give yourself a break and not try to do everything because you can't do everything without community because we don't have community right now that we can engage with in a physical manner. Can we talk about, you brought it up in our uh, first segment, when you are entering a family and you maybe have an extended family who either doesn't approve of your faith tradition or softer than that, just doesn't get it, is a little wary of that when you are the sort of emissary of your faith in your spouse's extended family. Can you talk about some of the issues that come up there and how to make that easier? Yes. I like to reframe this, as you said, an emissary as being an interfaith ambassador, being an interfaith teacher. You are going to be called on to teach your own religion to your partner's family and to teach your partner's religion to your own family. So you have both of those roles and you need to understand your partner's religion deeply enough that you can responsibly explain it to your own family. So what's part of what's really important here is educating yourself and your partner and your extended family. Actually reading books you know, don't just rely on them, what they told you, but do some research. You know, it's good for your brain. It'll expand your knowledge and it will make you a more responsible teacher and ambassador because you're going to be thrust into that role. You don't really have a choice about it. You are going to be mediating between, you know, these extended families. But so try to take pride in it and take it seriously and do the research and that's going to help. The other thing, again, is the empathy. So find ways. You may not approve of your partner's extended family's religion if they are, say, you know, very orthodox or conservative. But you could still really appreciate, say, learning to make some dishes with your partner's grandmother or learning some songs from them. These are ways that you can make them feel honored, make them feel appreciated, make them feel less fearful about the loss of their culture, which is really the baseline fear, I think. Yeah, we call this finding access points, right? And it, even in, again, interfaith or in, what we're learning, I feel like in this conversation, it, this is true for everybody, because as we keep saying, I'm not in an interfaith family, and it all resonates that mm -hmm. finding access points with people, if you go in with that mindset of, okay, this family operates different than my family of origin, and I don't understand their traditions, and I feel like a fish out of water here, that what are the, look for the connection points rather than keeping your like careful catalog of everything they do that is absolutely wrong and terrible. It's just an easier way to spend time with other human beings. Right. And rather than feeling like a fish out of water, 
try to convince yourself that this is an opportunity for learning, for growth, for challenging your own mindset and context, all of which is going to be a growth experience. If you're going to try to bring together these two traditions without fear, without fear is maybe the wrong word, but just sort of thinking the other is something to be kept at bay a little bit. What if you're the person trying to help your spouse become part of the family? So one key to this is that it is really important that you stand with your partner and not sort of go back and forth between the family team you grew up in and your partner, and Mm. then your partner starts feeling insecure and undermined. So in the journal, part of the aim of this is to help the two of you to develop a plan that you've agreed on, that you stand together, that you've made these decisions, and then you go out to extended family and say, okay, here's what we're doing. We need you to respect it. Here's the boundaries we've drawn. You know, we're going to raise children this way. We're going to put them in this kind of school and y'all have to just deal with it. But it's important to stand with your partner here. And what a minister that I work with talks about drawing a sacred circle around the couple Mm. and that you have to be strong in that circle. And then it helps you to go out with confidence to the rest of the family, whether they approve of what you're doing or not on some level is irrelevant. I mean, you want them as community, you want them as support, you want them to interact with your children or future children. There are cases where people end up cutting themselves off from extended family if it's too toxic. We all know these cases. And again, it's not necessarily over the issues of religion. Mm-hmm. But it's you know not 100% of the time that you're going to be able to bring all of the extended family along with you on this journey. Ideally, you're going to. That's right. And another non-interfaith parallel that we talk about all the time now is coronavirus and protocols and how we deal with that. And it's the same process, right? We've done our own research. We have sat as a family and made a decision and we have kind of set a circle around us about what our decisions are in this situation and that it is hard for people and we acknowledge that it can be really hard for people when people are like, you're so uptight. I don't understand why you're doing it this way. It hurts us that we don't see you. But that practice of drawing that circle and really making just loving, calm, researched decisions within it. And then it doesn't necessarily have to be fault lines and emote and arrows and war lines heading out, but it's like, this is where we stand. And I think the step we skip sometimes is taking the time to draw that line, that sacred circle. I like that image a lot and say, this is what we stand for because I think it actually cuts down on the conflict. Yes. Because you're not having conversations every single time about like, Is there going to be a tree? Is there going to be this tradition? Are we going to wear this? And it's just, this is where we stand. And we don't need to have conflict a hundred times a day. These are our boundaries. And now we approach you with love and the boundaries are what they are. Exactly. And, you know, with the pandemic, we're going to come out on the other side. So we're all looking forward to not having to have that topic to conflict over. But even with interfaith families, there is always hope for a future I've seen a lot of cases where extended family is, you know, very problematic, very against the family when they first get together. And then after grandchildren are born, 
there's a magical transformation mm. where everybody seems to start getting along better because the grandparents really want access to those grandchildren. Because who can resist a chubby baby? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's always hope. <laughs> Even in a pandemic, there's always hope. Yeah, there is. <laughs> we'll take a positive message where we can get it. So Susan, tell us where we can find you and tell us about the Interfaith Family Journal. Yes, you can find me at SusanKatzMiller.com. And I'm on Twitter, Susan Katz Miller. Both of the books are for sale on Amazon and everywhere else. The first book is called Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. And it's primarily about that pathway where you do both religions, which is not everybody, but it's an interesting read. And the second book is The Interfaith Family Journal. And it's really for everybody. I even have a friend who did it by himself. His partner didn't want to do it with him. And he still found it really useful. So take a look. I think this book is fantastic. I found it so fascinating to look through this and think about, as you said, my own interfaith family, two Catholics with a very different Catholic upbringing and what we hold dear. I had a lot to think about. So I really loved it. Thank you for reading it. Susan, thanks so much for joining us today. We really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Susan. Okay, happy everything. Happy everything, guys. <laughs> hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.